Let's take our Bibles now and turn together to Esther, the book of Esther, in chapter 6. And this evening we will turn and find our place again to the book of Esther. It's interesting when you immerse yourself and we spend time in some of these familiar yet unfamiliar books, they become like new old friends, don't they? And we spend our time reading them and coming back to them. There's a familiar delight in our hearts that says, what does the Lord have for us next? And so we turn again this evening to Esther chapter 6. And we'll look this evening at just Esther chapter 6. So join me there beginning in verse 1. We have yet another installment here in this narrative, this journey of Esther and Mordecai and Haman and Xerxes. And so we jump right into the narrative Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai? For this, And the king's servants who attended to him said, well, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. Don't, don't forget, friends, this is in the middle of the night. Okay, just, just keep that in mind. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king should hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had just prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor? More than me. And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let the royal robe be brought in, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let his robe and his horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor, then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him this. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Friends, of all the more memorable phrases that we will see in the record of Scripture, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is such a phrase. Let nothing be undone of all that you have just suggested and spoken there, Haman. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man who the king delights. To honor. Now, I don't know that that's exactly how he said it, but I can imagine his heart was not quite as in it as it was earlier when he declared it with enthusiasm before the king. Verse 12, Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. 
But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Well, this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God for His word. Again, as we look here at the book of Esther, we're finding themes, irony, literary themes, literary devices. Irony is pregnant in every line of every page. We also see the doctrinal theme of the timing of the providence of God. It's been said, I believe, the paraphrase of a quote is, is circumstances or circumstantial happenings are God's way of staying anonymous. Uh, the, the just so's, if you will. And that is exactly what we have, even though God is not formally mentioned here in the book of Esther, He's present in every page. He is working, He's reigning, He's orchestrating. And friends, behold the mystery of the will of man, choosing and making decisions, their own volitional choices and conversations and timings. And behold the sovereign will of God, all at work, in this beautiful, simultaneous way. Some of you may be wearing a watch that has different parts and pieces to it. If you were to take off the back, there is mechanisms and probably a hundred small pieces that are on a microscopic level, or maybe not microscopic, but very small. We'd have to put on an hourglass to kind of see how it all fits together and work, and the jewels and the crystals. But they're all working together to bring us the appointed time. That is exactly what is happening when we see these individuals living their lives, uh, uh, making decisions and being led in some senses by their emotions and their circumstances and others helplessly being gathered along by seeming to choices and decisions that they do not have a voice in. And yet we see God's hand bringing all of these things about for His appointed ends. Friends, I know we've been hitting this theme, but we, we can't stop. Just know this, the providence of God is the pillow by which the righteous lays their head on to sleep each night. When you wonder, what on earth is God doing in my life? Uh, what, is, what is it exactly that is, that is happening? And there's so much unknown, and you're wondering, Lord, is, is there a plan here? Uh, Lord, it's looking like we're going to perish. Now, I'm not actually thinking anybody here tonight is thinking they're going to perish, but taking the language of the text here. Lord, what is, is happening? Well, just know this that the righteous lay their heads on the pillow of the sovereignty and providence of God every single evening, knowing that as they sleep, their God will go before them, and His purposes shall stand. Regardless of what takes place, the purpose and the decree and the will of the Lord shall surely stand. Church, that gives comfort. It helps us. Well, that is certainly the theme that we see here this evening. We're going to frame our thoughts briefly around these headings. Number one, the king's insomnia. Number two, the king's inquiry. Number three, the king's instruction. And then number four, the king's intimidation. First of all, I want us to notice, number one, the king's insomnia there in verse one. Notice how chapter six opens up and begins for us. It says, that night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles 
and they were read before the king. As we look at chapter 6, this chapter opens and begins in the chambers of the king, in the bedroom of the king. Here we are told that he cannot sleep. We are not told why he has insomnia. We are just simply told and instructed that he cannot sleep. Have you ever been there? Surely you have. All of us have, and for different reasons. We find in the midnight hours, sleep is hard to achieve. It seems to fly away. And I was thinking in preparation of the message, some verses that, what does the Scripture have to say about this? We're simply told that, that sleep is something that he could not achieve. Psalm 127, 2, it says, It is vain for you to rise up early. So to all your early risers, just, just hear that. <laughs> it's vain for you to rise up early. How many of you guys are morning people? Raise your hand. I mean, you're that, per- you're that person, yeah. How many of you are evening people? I mean, you could, you're just... 10 o'clock, because you're just getting going. Okay. Well, here, keep, keep, keep listening. Psalm 127, 2. It is vain for you early risers to rise up early. It's also vain for you late-nighters to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. But here's our phrase we actually want to focus on. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Friends, sleep is a gift of the Lord, isn't it? Sound sleep, good sleep. But at the same time, God also sometimes takes that gift from us for whatever reason, physiological reasons, circumstantial reasons, stress, uh, concerns. Uh, we begin to ponder our lives. It's oftentimes in the middle of the night when things are most quiet that we really find our most intimate time with the Lord. Have you ever been there? You're, just, you're like, Lord, I can't sleep. And you also find that physiologically there's not a whole lot you want to do. But it's always a good thing and a wise thing to turn to the Lord, isn't it? To read His Word, to seek Him in prayer. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says this, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich, notice here, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So there's a cause and a correlation between position, for our purposes here, power, being a king, and sleeplessness. Have you ever seen a president when he goes into office, the before picture? And then you've ever seen a picture of the president at the end of just four years? I've seen pictures of, uh, I saw a picture of a football coach recently, just three months ago. Three months ago. This is an NFL coach, and the picture that they were showing of him three months ago, and the picture of him now, his hair is literally turned white. The stress, evidently, of the, 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 the conclusion is the stress of the position or whatever. It's interesting to see those things. I never, never forget seeing General George Mattis a number of years ago. Constantly, he was in the news. I believe it was George Mattis, General Mattis, um, and had these huge, huge, huge bags underneath his eyes. My point is not to point out those types of things other than to relay this man had the stress of the world, of the nation, on his shoulders. So as we come to Esther chapter 6, verse 1, we just simply find the king cannot sleep. We're not told why he cannot sleep. But it's not hard to understand that those men in general who have little ones to feed and houses to oversee and take care of, uh, business to attend to in general, but here we have a king, a king who has a kingdom. 
He's worried about assassinations. He's worried about who knows what. The point is this, is that God has not allowed him to sleep. God has taken the gift of sleep from him. And I'll just say this, just as an aside, sleeplessness is a means that God often uses, don't miss this, to get our attention. For this case, we simply see here, King Xerxes turns to that which will surely put him to sleep, and that is an audiobook reading of the book of the Chronicles. How many of you guys you enjoy audiobooks? I do. Uh, here he pulls in Audible before Audible exists, and he brings in one of his servants to read to him the works or the narrative of the king. Now, this may sound or seem narcissistic. I don't think it's to be taken as such. Maybe. But more or less, it's reviewing current events. It's re- reviewing the news. It's reviewing what has happened, lest things fall through the cracks. And it is said, some historians said, this is a common pattern. Uh, for kings to do in the middle of the night when they cannot sleep. They're wondering, what have I not remembered? What have I, what have I forgotten? And they often find it helpful to the point of literally putting them to sleep. So he had one of his servants read the chronicles of the kingdom. Where do I, be, where do I begin, your majesty? doesn't matter. Just start anywhere. Start, go back the last six months. Go back the last year. I don't know. You can imagine the scenario of the question. And it just so happens... Where shall I begin reading, your honor? It doesn't matter. Just start reading. And where does he begin reading? He begins reading at a moment in time and a chronicling of the acts and works of Mordecai that has gone unaddressed. In fact, go back to Esther chapter 2, verse 21, just briefly so we don't lose this. And let's remind ourselves what exactly it was. It was referenced in the opening scripture reading in the beginning of chapter 6. Well, let's go back just a little bit. Esther chapter 2, verse 21. And remember the background to this account. Esther 2, 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious. Now, this is what's left out of our account in chapter 6 when they're mentioned. They became furious. We don't know why they were angry, but they reached a point of attempting to plan the assassination. They sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther. And Esther then informed the king, notice here, in Mordecai's name. It's not that the king didn't know. He was given credit for this development. Verse 23, And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed. And both of these men uh, were hanged on a gallows. And it was written... In the book of the Chronicles, in the presence of the king. Back in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit and the narrator of the story here, they want us to know this fact. Here, we hyperlink, we make a connection from here, click, and we now come to chapter 6, where this now comes back into play. And it shows us that the Lord is working in the backgrounds to bring this account, this circumstance, to the attention of King Xerxes. Here we have an instance in which Mordecai should have been honored and rewarded. If you were listening carefully in the scripture reading this evening, Proverbs 3, verse 27 reminds us this. Listen, or you can turn there. It says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. What a a, just a, a point to touch on. The responsibility that we have as friends and acquaintances those of you who have positions in your work or your place, uh, may the Lord give us insight not to be so busy, uh, not to be so distracted and weighed down with the cares and the burdens of the task list and what we have to do, that when there is obvious moments of rewarding that need to be done, 
May the Lord not only give us the humility to do that, not that I would think that's a major problem, but it may be. May the Lord help us to honestly praise what is praiseworthy. May the Lord help us to recognize and thank and give gratitude for and all of those things. But notice what, what is in the heart or the mind of Solomon when he writes Proverbs 3, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Here, Solomon, just as a cross-reference, has in mind someone who has the ability to do it, and not only to do it, but to do it now. There's no reason why you can't do it. And that's why he says, chapter 3, verse 28, Proverbs, he says, Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. And he goes on to give description. There's so much there in Proverbs 27 to the end of the chapter that I think correlates really well to what we're looking at here in the book of Esther. The first thing I just want to draw out is, is uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice, giving honor to those to whom uh, th- that deserve the honor. Here we have a practical illustration of Mordecai deserving a thank you for saving your life. Imagine someone saving your life and you've not even taken the attempt to say thank you. Well, that's what we have. While we're there in Proverbs chapter 3, just hear this in light of Haman, the character of Haman. Verse 29, do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. What has Mordecai ever done to Haman? He's not seeking his demise. He's not causing him harm. Verse 31, do not envy the oppressor. Choose none of his ways. For the perverse person, Haman, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. He goes on to say, The wise, verse 35, shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Let's hear that passage in light of our text, coming back to Esther chapter 6. Number one, we saw the king's insomnia. Secondly, we see the king's inquiry, or we could even say inquiries, plural. Notice there with me in verse 3, the historical record is read, and the king asks a question. Verse 3, the king said, What honor or dignity has been given, has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended to him said, Nothing, at least nothing here in the record, nothing has been done for him. That's the first inquiry of the king. This seems to be news to him, maybe in the moment. He had an important matter. The most important thing was to deal justly and swiftly with the men whose treason was brought to light. And then quickly, king, we need your attention in another matter. We don't know. But he obviously is becoming aware that he has not honored Mordecai for this this deed. So then the king asks another question. Behold, the timing and the providence in the ways of God. Here in verse 4. So the king said, who is in the court? Like at this very moment. I need someone who can do what I want them to do. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. This is one of those phrases, the timing and the sequence, and it's the same type of moment that we saw in the book of Ruth. When Ruth was going into the fields to labor and to provide and to get food for her and Naomi, and it just so happened that she landed upon Boaz's field. This is the same kind of moment. And it just so happened in the ways and the guiding and the providence of God at this very moment, who, verse 4, is in the king's court. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. To do what? This is in the middle of the night. To suggest that the king execute Mordecai. Talk about bad timing, at least from the perspective of the human perspective. 
Talk about bad timing on, the, on behalf of Haman. Talk about amazing timing on behalf of God. In verse 5, the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Here, the king, Xerxes, is responding to his confidant. He, he doesn't truly know all of Haman's character. It's not even as if the king's character is, is uh, sterling itself. But he doesn't know what the, are the machinations, machinations of Haman. He does not know the plot that he's planning. He doesn't understand the full scope of it. But here he sees Haman as his friend. Here he sees Haman. Oh, Haman, come in. Just the man who can help me. Just the man that I want to see. Let's review just for a second. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 9, probably within the same page or back one page, remember making a connection. Again, another hyperlink, another kind of momentary connection here in the text. Going back to chapter 5, verse 9, remember where we left off last time together. Why is Haman bouncing into the king's court, waiting for the king's attention, waiting to be seen of him? Well, chapter 5, verse 9, remember, Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when he saw Haman, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. This is the fly in the ointment, if you will. He cannot enjoy his moment. He cannot enjoy what is happening because of Mordecai. Verse number 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Here he calls his posse, his group, those that tickle his ears, those that he knows he can wax eloquent to. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children. I find that so funny. Remember, part of this is his wife, Zeresh. She knows how many children she's had. Thank you, Haman. <laughs> but he recounts for even her how many children that he has. And you can imagine the pomposity, the arrogance that is here. Everything of which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him before the officials and the servants of the king. Moreover, he lets them know of the invitation he's received. Verse 12 from Queen Esther. Verse 13, yet all this avails me absolutely nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. You know the rest of the story. They make the suggestion of let the gallows be made. Verse 14, 50 cubits high. And so this thing pleased him. The thing pleased him and so he had the gallows made. And now it's at this moment. We don't know what time this is. This is in the middle of the night. The king can't sleep. Where we last saw Haman at the end of the story was he's ordered a construction project to be done and to be done now. The gallows are completed and now Haman comes waltzing in to seek the king's permission to take Mordecai's life. While Haman is doing this, the king is being prepared by God, but being moved of God to exalt Mordecai. This is irony. This is interesting. As Haman comes to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he made, the king is being prepared and led by God to preserve and to exalt Mordecai. Verse 6, So Haman came in and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? It's here, if we haven't already seen Haman's self-absorbed pomposity, and character at the end of chapter 5. It's here that we see it afresh and anew. Again, honest question from the king. Context is he's made aware of a specific circumstance of someone who has saved his life. Haman hears the question and cannot imagine, cannot fathom that the king would be talking about anyone else other than 
himself. Friends, look no further than a portrait of turning in the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary together, if anyone still does such a thing. Surely you do. And you go to the letter P, P-R, P-R-I-D-E, and there we see the portrait of Haman. Here, Haman cannot even see past his own nose. He's full of pride. In fact, his pride blinds him. Just when he thinks the king is asking him about himself, verse 6, the narrator here tells us, And Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Certainly this is ironic. Well, here we see that Haman begins to answer. And God, in his timing and his wisdom, verses 7 through 9, Haman begins to spell out all that he would delight to receive. This is the good providence of God, isn't it? Here, Haman imagines the king surely is talking about me. What would I like? He ask, ask of anything in this imaginary scenario. Here, Haman is not going to let, uh, let this opportunity go to waste. What are the things he desires? Now, Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Verse 7. So Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought in which the king has worn. Well, obviously, appearances are important to Haman. He wants to not only look like the king, he wants to wear the king's stuff. Listen, wearing the king's stuff, if you're not a king, never works. Ask David. Remember? David coming to King Saul, and he put on King Saul's armor, and all this hoop. He's like, I can't do this. This this doesn't work. I'm I'm not the king. Here, Haman delights and desires to not only have the stuff of the king, he wants to wear the very stuff that the king has worn. Let that royal robe, verse 8, be brought in. Let a horse which the king has ridden not only come, but make sure the royal branding, make sure the royal crest is placed on its head so that all know I am a representative of the king. Then let this robe and this horse be delivered to the hand of one of the kings, now notice here, most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor and let that man go through the city square on horseback and proclaim before him that it shall be done. Let all know this day that it shall be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Here in Haman's answer, he has no shame. Maybe it's the ultimate picture of pride that goes before a fall. He's determined to use this as his very opportunity to enter into royalty, to wear the king's clothes, to ride the king's horse, to be paraded around in the streets. And here I think it's where we can have insight into the fact that God surely has a sense of humor. He does. His timing, his, his ways, the way he brings these things about. The king's insomnia, number one. Number two, the king's inquiries. Number three, we see the king's instruction. Notice with me, verse 10, the king thought that Haman's answer was satisfactory. What a, what, what a great response, Haman. So this is what he says. He says, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits in the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. We can imagine just in our mind's eye, you know, when you read narratives, 
here. I'm not suggesting that God's Word is just any book, so don't hear that. That's what I'm saying. But when you read narratives, you begin to form what people look like. How tall they are, how short they are, uh, their facial appearances, portraits in your mind's eye of who these people are. And here, whatever you have imagined of Haman looking like or being, you can imagine Haman about to, to, to just to puke, choking on the very words that he has just spoken. Wait, what? Mordecai, the Jew? And not only that, but he is the one who must go around and parade him, exalt him. He is the one who must go around declaring that this is the one in whom the king delights to honor. This is irony. This is providence. The timing of here, Haman was coming to the king to seek his life. And here he's just been tasked to honor the man whom he most hates. Friends, behold the timing of God. Behold the justice of God. Surely there is a God in heaven. Now, I cannot imagine in, more, in Haman's mindset there was anything more disgusting to, the him, to him than this task of clothing Mordecai and parading himself and parading before him as they're going through the streets. Think about it with me just for a second. Try to enter into your mind's eye. Here as Haman is guiding Mordecai through the streets, what all do you think they're seeing? Of course, there's crowds gathered and coming out. They're seeing, no doubt, walking by the very gallows that he's just had made for Mordecai. Talk about irony. Imagine the scenario. Imagine the situation. Here, Haman's having to declare. Imagine he sees his very friends who've, who've given him counsel. He sees his very wife, and they're all looking at him like, what are you doing? And here he's going through exalting the very man he hates the most. Background, the gallows. Background, on the walls are the, the edicts and the decree of the slaughter of the Jews coming up. At this very moment, Haman, who thinks he's on the way up, is actually very quickly falling down. And Mordecai, who feels as if he's on his way down to the point of destruction, is actually being lifted up by God and is on timing in his own way for his own purposes, for the salvation of his people. Lastly, number four, we see the king's intimidation. We see the context of this scene. We see that after the fanfare, Mordecai is reinstated. And imagine just the perspective of Mordecai, just for a second. Let's go back. Imagine Mordecai seeing those edicts of the slaughter of the Jews. Imagine what Mordecai is seeing. What? Thank you, but this is a little late, isn't it? And how can I celebrate? How can I celebrate when our people are about to be destroyed? You're, you're highlighting the fact that, in a sense, here's Jew number one, Mordecai the Jew. And he sees his people in sackcloth and ashes and mourning and weeping. And he knows they're wondering, wait a second, what's going on with Mordecai? This is odd. The timing is, is unusual. Well, here we see in our text, at the end of the chapter, after all the celebration and fanfare, what happens when the dust settles? Mordecai is reinstated to his position back at the king's gate, back at his own haunts and office space area. He had to be perplexed, but notice he lets the honor work its way out, and here he just continues to do what he has, he has always done. He makes no demands, does not seek esteem and an honor and positions beyond what the Lord has afforded for him. In fact, we see a beautiful picture of a man who took what the king gave as a matter of honor, and when that matter was done, 
He went back to being just exactly who he was, who he has always been. He's the very opposite we can make of a character sketch of puffed up Haman. Haman being puffed up on himself, intoxicated in his own spirit, in love like narcissists looking into the pool of his own reflection. Mordecai is none of those things. He's a humble man, James chapter 4, verse 6, reminding us, but God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Whenever you come across that phrase, it's stated a couple of different ways in the New Testament. Peter has a phrasing of it as well. We think of, who does God resist? Look no further again in that dictionary going over to letter P, P-R-I-D-E. The men who operate and act like, like Haman. God resists them. And here we see God taking him down. Here we see God giving grace, exalting in due time the humble. In this instance, Mordecai. Verse 12, afterward Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men or his counselors and his wife said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. What a prophecy. What a, what a foretelling from the Lord. Then verse 14, we see this jarring moment before they were even finished, while they were still talking to him. Again, timing, providence, circumstance. The king sent his eunuchs, and they came, and they hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Remember, this is the second banquet. Last time together, we see Esther coming before King Xerxes to make her petition and her request before him. He says, what, what would you ask? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. She asks him in the throne room after being spared her life. She says, I've come to the banquet which I have already prepared for you and, and bring Haman with you. Then at that first banquet, remember, he says again, multiple times, three, four times, what is it that you desire? What is it that you seek? We don't know all that's happening here in the text. There are conclusions that we can make. There, we saw last time together, many surmise that the way the language is written, that she begins to make her request to the king. And then it's as if there's a moment of pause and thinking. Others say, no, she is taking control of the moment, suspense, intrigue. She's using all of this to her advantage wisely, carefully, stealthily. Bottom line is, we just don't know. But she makes a request. She says, would you come again to the second banquet, which I have prepared for the king and for Haman? Well, it's here that we see the king's eunuchs come in this very moment, at this very timing, this very way that says, come to the banquet that the king, that king, Queen Esther has prepared. Let's have some conclusion and some points to ponder here this evening. First off, let's go back to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. In fact, I would ask that you turn there just briefly as a general reminder for all of us. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. A moment ago, I was saying it, paraphrasing it. I think I heard some of you there finish it. Proverbs 16, 18 is surely a passage that we not only need to mark and know and underline, annotate, but we need to have it imprinted in our memories. It's a general reminder for all of us as we think about as disciples the call of Christ to be His disciples and to deny ourselves. To deny ourselves. The, that natural way which seems right unto man, which gets in the way of the cross, gets in the way of our serving 
Christ. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Church, this is not just for our children, our neighbor, someone else out there somewhere. This is for us. Lest we read this narrative and insert ourselves inappropriately, uh, let's not do that here this evening. Let's remind ourselves of all of us have the calling and the task and the duty to mortify pride. Heeding the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs, it says, remember, it goes before our destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, this certainly describes the whole ethos or character of Haman. And as we conclude, I want to give us some points to ponder. Now, if you will, to go back over to Luke chapter 14 and verse 7. And just a couple of points in conclusion here. First off, as we think about this, God often promotes those in His timing this way. God often promotes those who are least expecting it. When we behold the works and wonders of God, we know this. God has His own timing, His own ways, His own purposes, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And our point of application, our point to meditate on as we leave this Esther chapter 6, is just remember this. God often promotes those who least anticipate it. In this instance, Mordecai no doubt has thought God has forgotten. God has moved on. But as we who read the story, it's a reminder to us that God often promotes those who least anticipate it. Looking there in Luke 14 verse 7, remember, so Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. When he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. What is this? What are we talking about here? Here, Jesus is just espousing practical wisdom. Here, he's just speaking to common uh, human nature, to aspire after or to seek after something that has not been granted. He says, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, here, give this place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes, that he may say to you, friend, here, come up, come up higher. We have a place for you then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Now, if you're, under, if you're still wondering, what, all is, what is Jesus saying here? Verse 11 is it. Verse 11. Verse 11 interprets all that we've just seen here, beginning back in verse 7. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Lord has his own economy. And it's this, if we're seeing a theme week after week in the book of Matthew, particularly where we are right now in Matthew chapter 18, greatness in the kingdom is humility. For he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here in verse 11 of of Luke 14, we have Haman described for us in the first phrase, for whoever exalts himself, Haman, will be humbled. And then Mordecai, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God often promotes those who least anticipate it. But then we also see in this passage, God often uses those who least deserve it. I want to make clear here, it's not that Mordecai is special. Mordecai needs the grace of God just like anyone else needs the grace of God. 
when you look at Jacob and Esau, don't look at Jacob, who God makes very clear that he has chosen. Don't look, look, don't look at Jacob as if there's something he's done to deserve the grace of God. Mixed with this, the second heading, notice here, God often uses those who least deserve it. And here in this account, in this instance, he's using both Mordecai, who doesn't deserve it. By the way, he's also using Xerxes, who doesn't deserve it. Remember, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it like channels of water. He turns it, redirects it, dams it here, takes it there, however he will. Behold the wisdom and purposes of God. And remember, all is grace. None of us deserve anything. We all deserve the wrath and judgment of God, and yet God delights in using people, and He often uses those who least deserve it. Two other points I want us to consider. God often judges those who least expect it. That is to say, God often brings to the wicked man His day of judgment when He's least expecting it. Here we see in this passage in Esther chapter 6 that Haman thought his day was going, or Haman thought this day was going to be his greatest day. And it winds up being, by the end of the day, his worst, the worst day of his life. In fact, maybe if you've ever tuned into ESPN's documentary series 30 for 30, have you ever seen that? They all begin the same way. A voice comes across the screen as a montage of pictures and video clips are taking place about these different genres. And this voice comes across and says, what if I told you, dot, dot, dot. And then he begins to give a narration of a very improbable, unlikely scenario. What if I told you? When we come to Esther chapter 6, it's a story that the Holy Spirit is giving to us. What if I told you about a particular day? And we see all of Esther chapter 6. It's that very same kind of, kind of moment. And we see the beginnings of the judgment that is coming to Haman, who least expects it. Church, I just want to remind us as those under the new covenant and those who are under the grace of God, maybe some here this, this evening who are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, do not spurn the grace of God, the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do not squelch or put away the work of the Lord. Whenever the Lord speaks to you, obey it, follow it, respond to it. If you're His child, that's a sure sign that you are one of his children. When the Lord speaks to you, you respond in repentance and faith and trust. If the Lord is working in your heart and you're worried about your salvation, your testimony, the same exhortation goes to you. When you know the Lord is working, don't stiff arm him. Don't harden your heart. That's a refrain we often see in the scriptures. Today, if you will not harden your heart, hear the word of the Lord. Let him who has ears to hear, let him here. Let the reader understand phrases that all point to the, the fact of the imminent importance of responding with obedience to the Word of God, with faith and trust. God often, in the purposes of Haman and his purposes in the life of Haman, God often judges those who least expect it. So while that sounds ominous, and it is, there's no taking away of it, listen, just remember, for all of us, our whole lives are but a rehearsal for the day we die. Every day we get up, we do not know what lies before us. We do not know what a day will bring forth. 
So to the godly man or to the wicked man, that, that stands the same. The godly man is comforted in the providences of God. The godly man is comforted in the grace of God. The godly man is comforted knowing that all that God does on his behalf will work for his good and the glory of God. In the same token, you do not know what a day will bring forth. And if you feel the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you today, today, if you will not harden your heart, remember Genesis 6 language my spirit, God says, will not always strive with man. We don't know what all was happening in the heart of Haman and the inner counsels of his heart, the conscience warning him, Haman, this is wicked. Haman, this is wrong. Haman, this is evil. Haman, this is whatever. His conscience speaking to him. In the Romans 1 language, no doubt he's hardening his heart. He's squelching it. Every prompting of the conscience, every prompting of the Holy Spirit, Every, prompter of the, every prompting of the Holy Spirit, he's turning away, putting down. Well, here's our principle. God often judges those who least expected it. Our last point I want us to consider briefly here is this. Church, know this. Your God is working on your behalf here this evening, today. Trust him. As we often quote John Piper's comment, his quote, that at any given moment in your life, God is working and doing 10,000, I believe it is, things, uh, and you may be aware of three of them. What you know and what God knows and what you think he's doing and what he's actually doing, you may be aware he's doing all of these things, but you may be aware of two or three things and you grow in despondency or discouragement. So church, hear the exhortation and encouragement of the Lord. God is working on your behalf today. You say, oh really? That sounds a little self-helpy, Legrand. Are you changing on it? Not at all. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Then one other one, Psalm 138.8. The Lord will perfect, notice here, that which concerns me. Friends, that's another good verse for you to mark. Has the Lord forgotten me? Uh, has the Lord forgotten about this situation? Or has the Lord forgotten about the intricacies of what concerns my heart? Has the Lord, is he sleeping? No, no, no. Psalm 138, verse 8. Remember, the Lord, the psalmist, has confidence and declares Yahweh will perfect that which concerns me. Now, just maybe I'm getting off track here. I don't want to do that. But, but the, world, the world says this in common vernacular, stay in your lane. You ever hear that? Little phrasings and whatever. Hey, listen, just stay in your lane. Well, here the psalmist is saying this, not stay in your lane, but he says the Lord, he'll take care of all that matters that he has purposed for me. I can trust in Him. I will rest in Him. He will bring about to perfection and completion all that He has regarding me. Then He says this, Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Well, may the Lord help us. May He bless our study of Esther chapter 6. May He continue to humble us. May He continue to awe us with His providence, His ways, His workings. May the Lord this very week teach you that He's working on your behalf. May the Lord this very week through decisions, conversations, decisions on behalf of, uh, uh, that others make in your life. May the Lord to his people give promptings and assurances that he has not forgotten you. He's not forgotten your prayers or that which concerns you. May he build your faith. May he strengthen you. And may you be comforted by knowing that he will bring all things to its consummate end because he is the Lord of history. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your truth, your word. We thank you for these rehearsings of your providence in the lives of your people. 
Lord, we trust you. We want to confess this evening to ourselves. We want to say it out loud. Whatever it is that may be on our prayer list that we wondered, have you forgotten about our love for this loved one, their salvation? Have you forgotten about this difficult circumstance, Lord? We've been seeking or fasting or praying, and Lord, have you? how long, oh Lord? I just want you to know. The Lord wants you to know He has not forgotten you. Father, this very week, would you strengthen your people? Would you encourage them? Would you help them to not only see you in your word, but would you help them to be comforted by the timing and just assurances of things that only you and them know about? Strengthen their faith and build them up uh, in these ways. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.